Hi, this is Mish Hancock, and you are listening to Mishmash, a place where I get to talk to the weird, wacky, wonderful people of this world, people I adore and want to know more about. Today, my guest is Dr. Shana Gifford, whose career has crossed science, space, and medicine in numerous ways. Currently, she works as a physician at Barnes Jewish Hospital in St. Louis. Some previous roles include a stint as the scientist-in-residence at the St. Louis Science Center and a tour as the health and safety officer and crew journalist on NASA's one-year mission to simulate Mars. Well, Shay, welcome. (laughs) Thank you. So, you know, you have had such an amazingly interesting life journey with all that you have done. And of course, you know, like everybody right now is probably like Mars, Mars simulation, what? Tell us, tell us the most amazing thing about your Mars simulation. I think honestly, the most amazing thing is that given a year, almost any of us could do it. I really believe that. Really? I think so. It wasn't, I mean, did you have any contact with friends, family outside? Yes, with a 20-minute delay in each direction, simulated. So I sent video clips, I sent audio, I sent plenty of emails, probably dozens if not hundreds every single day. So there was definitely contact, but no real-time contact. And you blogged. And you I blogged, blogged about the whole, which you can find on your website, correct? Sure. Livefrommars.life is, is still the record of that year, sort of an online journal of uh, the year on Mars. I love it. So I cannot even fathom living. I mean, how, how large was the space and how many people were there? So it's like living inside a giant soccer ball, Mitch. You know, if you can imagine <laughs> that, take a soccer ball and blow it up to the size of a three-bedroom apartment. Okay. And now you're living in half of that. Oh my! You gosh. know, take that, take half that soccer ball and plunk it on top of a barren volcano, kind of like the you know supervillain's secret underwater lair, except it's on top <laughs> of a volcano, barren <laughs> volcano, and then put you know six you know astronaut-like people in it, and that's kind of what it's like. It's a very short work commute. Yes. So there's, but (laughs) but you're also on top of a barren volcano for a year with only those five other people. And what turns out to be interesting about it is strangely mundane. It's that you have to wake up every day and be a scientist farmer. A scientist farmer. You have to wake up and see how the power's doing and see if you can turn on the coffee maker. (laughs) And if you got enough power to turn on the coffee maker, well, maybe you got enough power to turn the lights on. And if you got enough power to turn the lights on, then you can turn the lights on your grow your plants and start, <laughs> you know, get your plants growing for the day. And it's just very, very mundane in some totally, totally predictable ways. So every day in a way looks like the next. There's no seasons much. Oh, yes, that's true. Mars does have seasons, but they are not as pronounced as seasons on Earth. Um, and so time passes, people on earth have birthdays and holidays and anniversaries, and these things just don't exist where you live. You do literally, in this case, live in a bubble. Wow. Wow. And so seasons on Mars, I mean, what, what does, what seasons do they have? Well, they have the same set of seasons that we do. Um, the axial tilt of Mars is similar to okay. our own. It's just that the environment is not so varied. So they do have winter, summer, spring, fall. Of course, their year is twice as long as ours. Okay. So it's more drawn out. Let's say a balmy summer day 
at the equator on Mars, it might be, oh, up to 20 degrees Fahrenheit. It would be almost really? almost warm. Not really balmy. <laughs> <laughs> like, that doesn't sound very comfortable. <laughs> I don't know. I have friends and family in Los Angeles right now who might really enjoy <laughs> I gotcha. <laughs> and then, of course, a cold winter day at the poles would be far colder than anything you'd see on the planet Earth. Probably so, not something you'd want to deal with. Not without a lot of gear. <laughs> yeah, without your own bubble. <laughs> and that's it. And fortunately... You have a bubble, it's called your spacesuit. Okay. And you have a bubble, it's called your base. And, you know, every time you put a spacesuit on and exit the base, you're basically wearing a spaceship. You're wearing your own personal spaceship. And it protects you from the elements, be they the vacuum of space or the atmosphere of, of Mars, which is one one-hundredth of our own and often quite cold. Um, or be it, you know, in, in the Antarctic, when people go out, they're wearing a tremendous amount of gear as well, especially right. in winter. So you have to wear gear appropriate for the environment. Oh, my goodness. Did you, I mean, after this year with these these individuals, I mean, did you guys feel really especially close to each other? I mean, did you feel like you formed your own family in a sense? Yeah, in a way, I think yes, because families are exactly that. They're a group of people brought together by coincidence and necessity. And I felt like, you know what? We get along in some ways that remind me of family, and we don't get along in some ways that remind me of family. Right. So, um, yes, yeah, some people, you know, there were bonds formed between groups of people, different groups of people at different times for different reasons who had different things in common. But now and forever, we will be that first group of people who did the longest space simulation in U.S. history. That's never going to change. And how did, did, did they find you or did you hear about it and say, hey, I would be awesome at this? That's a great question. Um, I had gotten hooked up with space simulation through my work for NASA. I've been working with them on and off since I was about 18, I guess, on satellite projects, on spacesuit projects. And I heard about a short-duration simulation to an asteroid called Hera. No, the Hera is the name of the simulation. The asteroid is called Geographos. It's that asteroid right there. Okay. I'm, holding up a, I'm holding up our mission patch I here. love the mission patch. We'll have to take a picture of it. <laughs> sure. So the mission patch is, it's it, it does not look like a tricorder it does not look like the emblem from Star Trek at all. No. If it did, it, it would be a coincidence. It seriously does not. <laughs> at all. No, not at all. And um, at the tips of this thing that is clearly not the uh, the, ba the badge from <laughs> Star Trek, um, at the top is a picture of the asteroid that we travel to during the simulation. And this asteroid called Geographos is, is real and is the most elongated object in our solar system of which we're currently aware. It's just this very long asteroid. And it's a Mars-crossing asteroid. So it would take a while to get there. And in our simulation, you went into this habitat right here, which is in the center of the emblem. You walk in and they seal the hatch behind you. And you strap in and they fire the subwoofers under the building Ooh. to simulate actual rocket fire. And then the subwoofers called the, cause the building to vibrate. Oh, cool. So the building is vibrating. And on the screens, because you don't have windows in a, in a spaceship, you have these screens. It shows smoke and fire. And then you take off and the whole, the whole image tilts as if you were actually changing attitude the way you do when you're, when you're spiraling out from the earth. Wow. 
and uh, and suddenly you're sort of looking down on the curvature of of the earth and then you're outside of our own Van Allen belts and then you're on the way to the moon you whip around the moon for a gravity assist and then you're just gone in space and all of that takes probably 12 or 13 minutes it's really fast oh my gosh so within a matter of minutes earth and the moon are the size of your thumb the same size and they're the size of your thumb you can cover them with your thumb on the screen and they're vanishing and they're vanishing and then they're gone Oh, how interesting. And then it's just you and the crew until you get to Geographos. And when you get there, you fly this vehicle that you've brought with you called the MMSEV, the Multi-Mission Space Exploration Vehicle. They really have one at Houston. They drive it around in parades and they use it for training. Oh, cool. And so you, you fly it to the asteroid and you fly it around the asteroid and you pick up samples and you throw robots out and... In the latest iteration of this experiment, which is still going on, you actually get in a spacesuit and you VR and you go out and explore the oh, asteroid. Oh, now that's cool. Super cool. Oh, that's really cool. Super cool. So myself and these three other people uh, did this journey for two weeks and I thought, well, hey, that was great. And somehow, um, I guess the pool of, of qualified applicants who have been screened for this somehow is available also to the people at high seas. And maybe I put in an application or they called me. There was some there was some crossover there. Or I think I heard about it perhaps through Hera. But long story short, I did put in an application and um, I got in. It was a lot of fun. Actually, I think I had applied for the previous mission. But um, I had a, a one-year um, science journalism fellowship to USC. So I chose to go on that. Instead of high seas four, and I ended up on high seas uh, high seas three. So I ended up on high seas four. Wow, interesting stuff, ma'am. We're going to take a break and get right back with Shay and learn more about her mission to Mars. are back with Dr. Shana Gifford talking about her mission to Mars. Okay, did someone, how was this documented? I mean, is there, do I get to see the documentary someday or tell me? <laughs> I hope so. It was, we, the crew did shoot a lot of footage for a documentary called Red Heaven, Ooh. which is being uh, cut right now. And I think the production company is Raised by Wolves or something like that. They're <laughs> out of Oakland. Uh, Catherine Garang is uh, one of the chief documentary people on that. So hopefully, yes, there was a Kickstarter. They got their Kickstarter. So I imagine it will be available in the coming year. Wow. I, I, I totally want to see this. I can't even imagine. And do they? do you feel like they captured... I mean, did, you know, I mean, documentaries can be done in so many different ways. Do you have a sense that they captured maybe the personalities of the different people that were there along with what their particular role was? Well, I'll take my share of responsibility there. They weren't there on the mission. Only we were. Ah. So we did our own filming. Okay. So I guess the question is, did we? Did you do it? I did gotcha. We? Okay. Yeah. 
And what other, what were the other people's, what, their roles? What did they do? So there was an engineer, of course, uh, from MIT. He was also on my um, asteroid mission, uh, Angie Stewart. And he had been flying the Mars satellites prior to doing this. And he basically kept the hab up, kept the hab running. And especially the electrical systems, the power systems could be really finicky at times. Right. So he was pretty critical to keeping us in power. Yes. Similarly critical, uh, Tristan Bassingthwaite, our space architect, helped us design and rebuild the space in in useful ways. I mean, imagine you move into a three-bedroom apartment, but it's not your three-bedroom apartment. It's just a three-bedroom apartment until you create, take space and make space the space it needs to be. So space is at a premium in space. There's actually not a lot of space in space. space. (laughs) And Tristan is a specialist in not only optimizing the amount of space you have in space, but of making the spaces more livable, more appealing, more useful, and just more human. Because you can take any kind of a space, like the inside of a hospital, and pack it full of people. But it's still not the kind of space you want to live in for a year. Yes, So you want that space to absorb sound in the right ways. You want it to reflect light in the right ways. You want it to curve and not curve and have the right colors and textures. There's a lot to this whole space architecting thing. Was she like the space interior designer? Him, yeah. He was, uh, he's a space architect PhD. I'll be darned. That's an inter, I never even knew that existed until right now. It's a thing. And as soon as Bigelow gets his space hotels up and operational, I'm sure Tristan will have a lifetime of work to do. Oh, I want to go to the space hotel. Oh, me too. That sounds awesome. Where is the space hotel going to be? <laughs> Let's all go. Let's sign up now. Low Earth orbit, I imagine. <laughs> That's just a guess. And did, was someone a farmer? I mean, did you have a farmer? Yes, multiple farmers. Um, so you need to farm food and there were um, yeah, two or three people who were especially dedicated to that. Our space astrobiologist, Cyprien Verso, very, very talented guy from France, uh, was looking at different ways, mostly to use bacteria, cyanobacteria in particular, to help not only generate food in and of itself, because you can eat cyanos. They're a great source of just about everything except vitamin C and lipids. You could essentially live on them calorically and nutritionally. So he was also looking for ways to use them to turn Martian regolith or soil into something you can farm. Interesting. You can also use them to clean air, water, dissolve your garbage, essentially, turn your waste once again into usable product. Wow. He also um, was running an experiment for the European Space Agency involving mushrooms and having the mushrooms break down some of our sort of uh, tougher byproducts of, of the growth. So like stems and leaves and twigs and things that don't turn into compost very easily. Mm-hmm. The mushrooms will actually break that down and then they're a food source and of themselves. Wow. So he was doing some of those experiments. The um, There was a, an actual soil scientist there, Commander Carmel Johnston, and she was doing a lot of growing in an aquaponics system oh, from cool. Galactic Farms. Shout out to Galactic Farms. Thank you guys so much for the aquaponics. And so you, we basically had clip and grow. That was just growing out of the aquaponic system. You just keep the water circulating. Ideally, you have fish or, or some kind of... I was going to ask, were, were there space marine fish? Life. <laughs> there were not space fish. We were not actually allowed to have any pets or animals ah, as such. Okay. Although at one point, we did acquire two plush ferrets. <laughs> and we named them Raspberry and Trouble. 
<laughs> and they were our crew pets. But no, it, because it was fundamentally a study of dynamics and social psychology, pets alter that dynamic, as any pet owner knows. Ah, yes. So we didn't have any pets of any kind. Now, yeah. did you have a person that, beca- you know, how? okay, Star Trek, let's just go there. They always had like the counselor person, the person <laughs> that everyone could go talk to when things were just not right. In theory, yes, but in point of fact, no. Okay, gotcha. Mm-hmm. So did you guys act like can help each other out if there was like, I am really feeling claustrophobic right now? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think we had any actual claustrophobes. Good. But um, yeah, I think we all become at various points uh, emotionally claustrophobic. Yes. And I think at various points you turn to your best friend. And yes, everybody on the crew had a best friend, kind of the way you did in, on Star Trek or into you know, the sort of the triad of Kirk and McCoy and Spock. You know, everyone had the, you turn to the two people standing closer to you and say, this sucks. <laughs> <laughs> I can't imagine. I'm sure there's days where you're like, I really just want to go to Starbucks. <laughs> I can't say I missed uh, lattes per se, but I can say that I definitely missed my family, my husband, my cats. Um, Things at home were not easy for that year for me, for a lot of people. Um, I will never forget the night that we heard about the attacks in Nice. And this is something that they talk about in real space a lot, which is when there's trouble at home, do you want us to tell you? Interesting. Do you want to know? And how do you want to know? And when do you want to know? Do you want to know right away? Could be in the middle of a spacewalk. They're probably not going to tell you that your significant other was in a car accident, that your child has been hospitalized, that the capital of your country has been bombed in the middle of a spacewalk. Wow. They're probably going to wait until dinner, in fact, till you're done with your walk, till you're decompressed, your suit is, you know, demoted and, you know, cleaned till you've done your reports, till you're sitting at dinner, and then they'll say, okay, everybody, we need to have a talk. And that is kind of what happened with us. We were at dinner, and we got a message from Mission Control, you know, 20 minutes after they sent it saying, you know, we have to tell you something. And it was just horrible for Sippy to have to sit there and say, where are my friends? Where is my family? And he doesn't get to know. It's nighttime in France at that point. Everybody is asleep. So he just sat there, I think, with his computer all night. And that was really hard to see. It was heartbreaking. Oh my gosh, I bet. Yeah. And so things like that were really hard. And that's when the distance became most apparent in those moments. So when, I I keep thinking of, you know, it's hilarious, but I'm a total TV movie show person. Okay, the Matt Damon movie about Mars. I mean, was part was part of that where you did it make sense or was it so fantasy, no way? Oh, oh no. So to start with, Andy Weir did an amazing job with the Martian. He took his time and not only did he do an amazing job, he did the critical thing, which is he solicited feedback from the nerd slash science community. Love it. So Andy published this as a series of posts on a blog. They were free. And people fed back and they said, you know, this is wrong or this could, this would actually be like this. And he integrated that and then put the free ebook online, essentially. And people said, oh, that's great, Andy, but, you know, I really want to download it to my Kindle. Can you put it on Amazon? And Andy says, this is free on my website, but you want to pay 99 cents for it on Amazon. <laughs> sure. Okay. <laughs> okay. So Andy self publishes on Amazon. It becomes a, a 
self-made phenomenon. And he sells the rights to the book and the movie in the same week. Oh my gosh. And in going to make the movie, again, they brought in um, Jim Green. They brought in from uh, NASA Planetary Science. They brought in a bunch of people and they did a great job. There's some very obvious movie conceits that happen. You can see them. They're you got, minimal. You got to do that. <laughs> the one I hear complained about the most is actually the one that bothers me the least. And it's that while walking around on Mars, it's not as if they're walking in a third gravity. Hmm. Okay, I'll grant you that. What does walking around in a third gravity look that like? That was going to be my question. <laughs> does anyone know what that looks like it, anyway? It would look completely odd, uh, you know, and I don't think it would have helped. Ah, You know, yeah, yeah. you do things cinematically, you do things narratively to help forward the story. Would the third gravity have forwarded the story in some fundamental way? I don't think so. And the other conceits they make as well are, are mostly just visual. They, yeah, don't, yeah. they don't do anything to, to hurt the science per se. There are a few, but they're few and far between. Oh, how interesting. Well, thank you for all this insight. This is just amazing. And we're going to take another quick break. We will be right back with Dr. Shana Gifford. And we are back with Dr. Shana Gifford, and it's question time. Question all in your time. wheelhouse. <laughs> all things I know that you have ideas about. You can take it where you wish. Um, so one of my questions was about all of our planets, right? So other than Earth. Oh, wow. Other than Earth. Okay. What other, and I mean, and perhaps it's Mars, but what other planets should we be so thankful that it exists? All of the extrasolar ones that we've located in the last 10 years. Ooh, do <laughs> tell, extrasolar, I want to know. All of the exoplanets as they were that we're discovering around the other stars in our nearby section of the galaxy. And I don't know, are we up to over 4,000 now, maybe? Oh my gosh. I find myself incredibly grateful for those. I mean, our, our solar system is amazing. It has a wonderful selection of both rocky planets and gaseous planets and captured Kruber Belt objects and Oort cloud and all sorts of wonderful features that I think make for a really, truly good solar system. <laughs> and I wouldn't have it any other way. But I'm especially grateful for the fact that we are finding these planets, now Earth-sized planets, okay. around other stars. And it's really given humanity, I think, a moment's pause to reflect about what it is we'd like to accomplish. Do we want to try and get there? If so, how do we get there? Do we want to try to communicate? You know, we've come up with ways to possibly send back video from these planets. Really? The breakthrough star shot is essentially these teeny tiny sails, solar sails, that you accelerate to 90% the speed of light with lasers, shoot them out into space at Alpha Centauri, by, and then accelerate them. They have a camera attached and the idea would it would take them maybe four years to get there at this large percent of the speed of light and then they would pass by alpha centauri beta centauri whichever planet you aimed it at uh, whichever of those planets they have they all have planets i think that you aim them at and then they would take video 
and send the video back our way, which of course would travel at the speed of light. Oh my gosh, how cool is that? Right, but the fact that we're finding these planets allows us to dream big, engineer big, start to plan big. I mean, Mars almost looks like a small goal compared to things like Breakthrough Starshot and Generation Ships and all of that. So I'm very grateful for the 4,000 and counting planets we've discovered in other star systems and the fact that it looks like pretty much anytime there's a star, there's at least one planet. Oh my gosh, that is so interesting. I I would totally want to watch that. (laughs) I would want to see that video. I mean, that is fascinating to me. How fun. I know. Well, you can't aim the camera. And I I don't know, they've done some models of what a most of you know of what a, a video taken at most of the speed of light looks like would it still be worthwhile yeah and yes i think the answer is yes assuming that you got the planet in view and would and it, would it be instant feedback or are you waiting for that camera to show back up we'll be here? waiting i mean the, okay it, it travels at the speed of light which I is gotcha. as long as you're playing by the rules of physics as we know them <laughs> is fixed okay so assuming that breakthrough starshot you know took you know, six or seven years perhaps to get to the goal, shot the video and then fired it back towards Earth, assuming we got the signal and the signal was good. Right. You know, signals break up, things happen. Then you'd get this, you know, short clip in a matter of seconds of what a planet around another star would look like. That's the idea. And because these things are tiny, teeny tiny, you know, the size of microchips, the idea would be to fire thousands of them at a time to maximize your odds of getting something important. And how close could it get to the planet? Like, can we get down there and see if there's beings running about? You know, that's really limited by the technology. Okay. Yeah. And what's interesting, of course, is by the time it gets there, our video technology is going to be so much better. Yeah. You know. Now we got to do this kind of camera. (laughs) That microchip wasn't invented when we shot off the star shot. And now, so, you know, how good is the camera on it? Is really the answer to your question. Gotcha. Gotcha. That's like buying a phone. How good's the camera? Okay. How good's the camera? How good's the memory? How good's the battery? All of these are important. There you go. Oh, okay. So thinking of, you know, we're going to go to, if we go to Mars, let's say we're really going to get to do this now. We're going to actually have an actual Mars, the bubble, people there. Um, other than the the folks going to do this being completely sane, <laughs> What what do you feel would be other qualities that they would need in order to be able to do this? I think probably the first and foremost quality of someone who's going to spend three years going to a totally inhospitable place with no guarantee of return is that they are not completely sane in known ways. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> I'm not sure completely sane individuals do things like this. I love it. So what you are sending is people, and people are broken. Yes. So you want to know how they're broken. And they they should be very self-aware of the ways in which they're broken. They Their dysfunctions should be known and, and mapped and tried and tested and match well with the dysfunctions of the other people on their crew. Well said. That is an awesome answer. And it's true. I mean, there's you're not going to have these perfect, completely on it folks. But awareness is huge, right? Awareness in any situation is huge. Awareness is huge and communication is huge. And right. when, when your cracks are starting to show, you simply say, listen, this is the headspace I'm going into. It's not dissimilar from when I told the crew, listen, my grandmother is dying. She's actively dying. 
and I'm going to be sad for a little while, and I'll let you know when it's over. But if you notice that I'm sad, it is not you. Oh. It is her. And it is it is expected, and it will probably be over in the next few weeks. I and want you just people to act communicate like this that. all the time, Shay. <laughs> like if we could do, really, I mean, how much easier it would be in the world? Because you know how sometimes you don't know. I mean, I'm all about relationships. I had a I had a situation recently where I got a very curt email from someone. I thought, wow, wait a minute, this isn't like this person, you know. And I I called them and said, can we talk about your email? And then we, you know, he, he, I, I was kind of taking things out on you. I shouldn't have been taking out on you know. And 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 I thought it's so much easier if we kind of like people could say, listen, here's where I'm at right now, and I just want you to know, not about you, about me, and this is what's going on. But you have to be in awareness to do that. You do. I think it would be ultimately far more easier if people did not attempt to communicate by email. <laughs> this, that's the, or yeah, by text, <laughs> because these are not actually communication tools. They are fact transmission devices. The only things you can do with them well are transmit facts. I'm meeting Mish at 11 at Shock City Studios. <laughs> be there. The door code is 01 or whatever it is, right? Right. That's what it's good for. Attempt to use it for more than that. And you are in for trouble. It's like, oh, don't I, try to use your car to car to go ballroom dancing. It's not going to work well. Don't try to use email to have a de- in-depth, soulful, important very discussion. Very true. Exactly. So. Exactly. Well said. Thank you. Know. you. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit more about Mars. Is there is there a fact about Mars that just really freaks people out when you tell them? that something that we just do not know? I think people know it but it still freaks them out to tell them they will never speak to anyone on earth in real time again. Ah. And they say, what? And it's true even from the moon, but you don't really notice. There's about a two second delay. Okay. So people, you know, sort of forgot about it during the Apollo era, but it was true. It was, you know, Eagle has landed, dot, dot. We copy you, Eagle. Gotcha. That delay was not for dramatic effect. That was a legitimate delay due to the speed of light. So the second you go beyond the moon, it really gets noticeable. And when you point out to people, you know, you're never going to have a heart-to-heart, real-time, face-to-face discussion during this entire journey, people have to sit with that yeah. and try to imagine what that means because we've never experienced that. Except for maybe those of us who were alive and on the internet during the dial-up modem age. (laughs) Yes. And I'll say, okay, try to imagine communicating by dial-up modem. It's like that. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) We're going to have to go and deal with that again. That's right. I gotcha. Interesting. (laughs) Well, I am so... Thank you, first of all, for being on the podcast today. I'm so excited about your TEDx talk coming oh, up. I'm it's gonna be so a lot of excited. Fun. It's going to be great. Um, and, and we thank you for oh, being hey. a part of our event coming up on October 27th. Oh, you're going to be there. That's great. Of course, I'll be there. All I'll right. be there with bells on. <laughs> I'll look for the bells. I'll be sure to find you that well, way. Well, thank you, Shay, so okay. much for your Absolutely. time today. Okay. And you all have been listening to Mishmash. Find us on iTunes and subscribe. Everybody have a great one. Thanks. Thanks.